Is Vecna a perfect example of the devil? We finally get to talk about my favorite content of 2022, Stranger Things Season 4. This will be a spoiler discussion of Volume 1 of Stranger Things Season 4. And we're mostly focusing in on the character of Vecna. If you haven't seen Season 4, Volume 1 yet, you might want to watch that before watching or listening to this show. Welcome to the Story Geek Show. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers. The full cast audiobook of Death of a Bounty Hunter is now available on Audible audiobooks.com, Apple Books, and most places that audiobooks are sold. Support the show by purchasing a copy. Links are down in the description. Joining me to discuss Stranger Things, uh, the writer and director of Devil's Hollow, a brand new film which is hitting the festival circuit soon. He's a screenwriter with almost a dozen credits over on IMDb. And we'll be talking about his film Devil's Hollow after we talk about Stranger Things, so make sure you stick around for that as well. My buddy, Chris Easterly. Hey. How you doing, Chris? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. We, Before we started, um, I, Chris and I were talking about the last time we talked about him coming on was to talk about The Punisher. <laughs> so it's been a while. That, was, that yeah. show came out a couple of years back. Yeah, and we can uh, still talk about it if you want. <laughs> maybe we should. Maybe we should. I actually really enjoyed that show. It was very, very, very brutal. I'm shocked it's on Disney+, Plus, but uh, hey, these are the, this is the world we live in today. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I read that they're rebooting it, but they're still using John Bernthal. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Interesting. So I, I don't know where that stands right now, but I remember a couple months ago reading an article about that, that they're going to, I don't know if they're going to give him a whole new origin story or what, but, but yeah, it was a good show. Yeah, I heard they were going to, I was heard they were going to do the same thing for, um, for Daredevil and that Charlie Cox was going to come back, but then I also read somewhere that they were going to, now, I don't know if this is true because there's so much, like, you know, all these news sites that you never know what you're actually reading is actually a thing or not. But they were saying they were going to dumb it down, uh, or not dumb it down, but like reduce the violence. And I was like, I don't know if you can do these shows in the way that we yeah. loved them if you do that to them. But yeah, and it's going to be hard to top Daredevil. That was a great show. Oh, that's one of my favorite shows of all. That might be. So we're going to talk about Stranger Things season four, and it's one of my favorite shows of all time. It's in my top 10. But I think my favorite show of all time might be the Netflix Daredevil series. I just yeah. think it's just phenomenal. I just think it's a great show. Yeah, I think so too. For me, it's up there with Breaking Bad and The yeah. Wire. You know, yes. so totally agree. Those yeah. are all fantastic shows, by the way. Yeah. Um, so tell tell the audience a little bit about a little bit more about yourself. You got you've been screenwriting for decades at, at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up in Kentucky. And after college, I just packed up my car and moved out to L.A. because I always wanted to make movies, you know. And so <clears throat> moved out to L.A. in my 20s and uh, just started, you know, getting getting jobs as PA on set and working as a background extra and assistant to producers and washing cars and picking up lunch orders and all that stuff. <laughs> um, and I, I never went to film school, but I just kind of got my hands on scripts and read books and just started writing, you know. and uh, they say, you know, it's like can take 10 years before anything ever happens, you know, once you get started. And for me, it was about year eight when I actually got paid to write for the first time. Nice. But I think you need all that time to, uh, you know, for one, to get good enough at your craft that you're marketable. Um, but also, you know, just to to meet people and develop contacts and that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. yeah so I, I uh 
started writing. I got into the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop um, eventually and then got staffed on a couple short-lived TV shows. Uh, but those were great experiences working in a you know, professional writer's room and then wrote a movie for the Hallmark Channel and uh, just done some other stuff, documentaries. And, um, and I still I write. Uh, I've moved more into features because a couple of years ago I moved back to Kentucky and uh, got married and, and it's, you know, it's so much, as you know, it's so much cheaper to live outside <laughs> California. Um, but it's cool too, because like I, I haven't stopped writing and producing stuff because, you know, unlike 20 years ago when I moved out there, like you kind of had to be there, right. you know, um, and you, you still do if you're like in TV, but, um, but you know, now it's like with the democratization of, filmmaking like access to great equipment and you know uh and, and there's a growing base of uh crew members in different states and stuff so you can kind of do it from anywhere so yeah that's awesome that's awesome yeah and so we're going to talk about uh your film coming up um at the end of this year so i can't wait to talk about that it, one of the things i talk about uh with a couple of my friends on this show uh is how independent films they're still out there there's the independent films are still out there but they're good. They're, I mean, you can find them on streaming. So I don't want to say that they're difficult to find, but the streaming services are often not pushing them. So it's right. like this, and they're not in theaters anymore. You know, it's like the the 90s was like the premier decade of independent film. Um, and then <laughs> these days, it doesn't hit the theater unless it is a blockbuster that was yeah. spent hundreds of millions of dollars on. It's pretty wild. So it's an interesting environment, but um, I'm glad to talk to somebody who's uh, who's doing an independent film. So that's that's awesome. Um, but let's dive into Stranger Things here. I'm going to do a really quick recap. Uh, Stranger Things is back for season four. Most people have seen it. We got volume two of, of season four coming out in two days from the time of this recording, which has been awesome. So we're going to get volume one and then we're going to get volume two. And there will be another season. There is a season five still coming out, which is cool. Um, we will cover, by the way, I will cover on this show, I will cover some more things about volume one of season four, and then I will be covering volume two of season four as well. So we'll cover all the content. Um, but season three ended with the kids defeating the Mind Flayer and the Russians at the Starcourt Mall. Hopper was taken prisoner by the Russians and taken to Russia. Um, and by the way, there was kind of like a hint that maybe he had died and we weren't sure if he died. And then there was sort of like, well you know, we saw a little clip of like the Russians and they said, this is the American. Don't worry about the American. So there was a hint that he was still alive. And of course they confirmed that later in the advertising. Um, Joyce Byers moved to California with Jonathan, Will, Eleven, Steve and Eleven. So Jonathan, Will, Eleven and Joyce are all in California, which by the way is in California. Uh, it's portrayed as California, but it's technically New Mexico. And my wife grew up in New Mexico. She, she knows. She's like, oh, this is obviously New Mexico. Right. It's like when I watch a show set in Kentucky, I'm like, no, that's Burbank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, wait a minute. This is not where this is, but it's pretty funny. Um, and then Eleven and oh, sorry. It's Jonathan, Will and Eleven, California with Joyce. Steve, Nancy, Mike, Dustin, Max, and Lucas, and Lucas's sister, stayed in Hawkins. So they're they're divided up. And season four picks up a year later, uh, where most of the characters are either dealing with the trauma caused by their battle with the Mind Flare, or they're attempting to move beyond that and, and get into other things. So before we get real deep into Vecna, which is where we're going to spend a lot of time on this particular show, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Chris, on 
we have four seasons. I know season four isn't over yet, so it's not totally fair to put it in this, but we're going to do it anyways. Um, two questions for you. How would you rank order the four shows we have thus far, even though this one hasn't ended yet? How would you rank order them? And then does this fit in your top 25 shows of all time? Is it in your top 50 shows? Like where, how much do you like this particular show? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's just cause it's new and fresh, but I genuinely think season four is probably my favorite so far. Nice. You know, it's just so well, so well done. And it's so hard. It's like, and then you say, you know, they're going to do season five. It's like, man, it's like tempting fate. Like, how do you, I know. how do you keep topping it? You know? Yeah. Um, but it's just the way the stories were constructed and, um, you know, everything ties back to season one and um, it's just so well done. So I, and, and it's just entertaining. I love yeah. the uh, Eddie character. He's awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I would say for me from top to bottom, I would say season four. Okay. And then probably season one, okay. you know, just cause it was so unique and mm-hmm. something we hadn't seen before. And then uh, probably, three and two. Oh, so you and I are very, very close because okay. mine were mine. Season one is still my favorite. I just think that it just strikes the perfect balance, but season four is my, is my number two, like season four okay. comes right behind it. So you and I swap those, but then I have season three, season two. So okay. we're very much on the same page. Now I think a lot of people could say that they like season two more than they like season three. So what for you makes you like season three a little bit more than season two? I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> it's been a while honestly, since I've gone back and revisited those, but yeah. just in hearing your uh, synopsis of season three, I was like, oh yeah, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And just how each, uh, you know, each season is sort of tonally different, just yeah. like, you know, with season four, it's leans more into the horror tropes. And yep. um, so I, I, I think just in terms of like pure sort of enjoyment that that's why I like three better than two, maybe, but yeah. I, I liked season one the most because for me, it was, I'm going to get to the, the same question about why I like season three better too. But for, for me, season one was the best because there weren't as many characters. We got to focus a little bit more on the core group of characters and a lot, a, a, almost every single character goes through a pretty significant arc. And it's, it's brought on by um, not only the trauma of dealing with the Demogorgon, but also just what it's like to be someone who's about to become a teenager, right? And like, what does that look like? And and, and I think they did a really good job of striking that balance. And the fact that they have, you know, something that they do really well throughout all the seasons is adding conflict um, in all the right ways. Um, I don't know. I've said this on the show before, and um, I don't want to be overly harsh on Ozark, but if you compare Ozark to Breaking Bad to me, it's sort of like comparing like Shakespeare to a soap opera. Now, and let me just explain what I mean by that. Breaking Bad to me earns all of its conflict bit by bit. It's like, oh, I can see how they went from there to there. I can see how they went from there to there. Whereas Ozark is sort of hacking your brain a little bit, I believe, in that it's it's ramping up the conflict. Sometimes, in my opinion, it's ramping up the conflict um, in ways that are like, not fair they didn't earn the sudden twist of the show they didn't earn the sudden like all of a sudden it's like they'll be in a conversation about something very minor and instead of them ratcheting up just a little bit it'll be like all of a sudden like 
some character will say will get increasingly angry and say and like up the conflict that has nothing to do with the conflict that that scene was originally about and now it's about and and you can do that in lots of different shows but but they do it not like it's not like there's subtext 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 it's like there's like they're just talking about breakfast and now it's like why did you cheat on me and it's like there's so it feels a little bit unearned to me whereas breaking bad earns every moment like less organic yes that's yeah. a great way of putting it it's less organic and that's a great way of getting people engaged and watching right because it's kind of like uh oh wow what's going to happen next but at the same time to me it's like well that doesn't feel realistic to what we would experience in the real world there's usually like this subtext the subtext that keep hinting at the fact that they're upset about something and then you really realize what it is but there's still subtext and that's kind of like really artfully done and i think um Stranger Things does a really, really good job of that. They'll have characters who are uh, upset with each other about something else, but in the scene, it's not played as that. It's played as subtext. Right. I just think they do a really, really, really good job of that. So, And season one, I think, was um, just really instrumental at that. Now, um, I like season three better than season two because I think that a pure horror fan would say I like season two better because I think there's a little bit more horror elements to season two than there are to season three. But season three is a lot more fun yeah. <laughs> overall. And I think that that's why I like season three a little bit more. I mean, the fact that they can get away with stopping the terrifying scenario that's occurring in order for Dustin and his girlfriend to sing the never ending story. Right. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they can pull that off and it, it is pretty impressive. So that's why yes. I like season three a little bit better. It's just, the, it's I, love that, I love that relationship, Dustin and his girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It's, and the way that they introduce it and they were pretending like maybe it's, it's, it's not real. It's like, he has a fake girlfriend. It was like really artfully done. Yeah. Um, so you and I are almost on the same page with the ranking of them. Now, when you think about TV shows, of all time, like where does this fit in your ranking? Stranger Things, all of them so far. You mentioned like top. I mean, uh, it would be in the top twenty-five. I think I'm not sure quite where, but um, I, uh, I don't. My my favorite show of all time is Breaking Bad, um, yeah. and then some of my others are like The Wire, um, The Shield, oh, all yeah. these like dark crime shows, <laughs> um, and. Uh, and I, you know, I, I love Daredevil. Um, trying to think, like, with certain comedies. You know what show I, I liked, which critics didn't, that just came out, was The Offer. Have you seen oh. it? No, I haven't seen it. I've heard good things, though, actually. Yeah, it's about the making of The Godfather. Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, and, but, you know, you would love it if you're into, like, behind the scenes, making the movies, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, cause you get to see how the sausage is made, but, uh, you know, and of course they fictionalized and had to dramatize certain things, which probably didn't really happen, but it, it was a well done show. So I don't know. There's, there's so much content out right now. It's like, it's crazy. you know, what was my favorite show and what did I, yeah. what did I just watch that I loved? Like, what did I love? You know, <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah. I don't know. Well, um, it, ch it changes over time too. Cause shows can have these long runs. Like I would say game of Thrones is one of my favorite shows of all time. However, I would also say that Game of Thrones, the last season, and by the way, I don't think people understand one of the reasons why that show drastically changed. Did you watch Game of Thrones at all? I saw the first season. Okay. So here's what gets really interesting about Game of Thrones. And this is from a writing perspective. This is really fascinating. 
George R. R. Martin is like an anti-war guy. He's a pacifist. He's like a so he showcases all the things in his stories as like, aren't these horrific things about about the way that the world works that we really don't appreciate? Well, you'll notice that it the 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 violence in seasons one through five is very unsatisfying most times. Characters that you hate will die in like a random way. And you're like, oh, I was hoping that other character would get revenge on them. But instead, like that's taken away from them because they die some other way. Um, there's a lot of death in that <laughs> series. Well, in season six, I believe it's season six, there's the first death that occurs that is cathartic. And you go, wow, that was, I wanted that to happen. Why did I want that to happen? And what you realize is that's when, that's the season where the show got ahead of the books. And the showrunners were basically saying, like, here, we're going to work this out. And so so I think that seasons one through five are phenomenal. Six and seven give you some phenomenal moments, too. Like, there's some great moments in there. But they're definitely past the George R.R. Martin <laughs> theme, yeah. right? And then you've got the last season, which is really controversial. because A lot of people didn't like it. But I would argue that if you actually track that show back to where it started kind of losing its way a little bit, but my point is really back to season five. But my point in saying all of those things is really that, like, you know, shows can go on to have another season and that kind of ruins their overall impact. Um, so I'm hoping that that doesn't happen with with uh, Stranger Things. We've only got, you know, volume two and then season five. Yeah. But I will say that um, Stranger Things for me is like in my if it's not in my top five, it's in my top ten. Okay. And I'm just like you. I like Breaking Bad. I like Better Call Saul even better than I like Breaking okay. Bad, which is remarkable. I just think the writing on that show is just phenomenal. And the acting, too, is phenomenal. Um, Daredevil, for sure, is up there. But Stranger Things, for me, it's very, it's very joyful while also being able to watch really solid storytelling unfold. Yeah. And you don't always get that. Sometimes you get something that's joyful, but the story's like kind of whatever. Sometimes you get really great storytelling, but like there's not a lot of joy in it and there's just depressing or whatever. And this kind of just covers you. I believe that if you know most of the seasons of Stranger Things, you will feel a complex set of emotions as an yeah. audience member watching the show. And yeah. um well I don't go ahead. I was just gonna say listening to you talk about uh Game of Thrones like reminded me of how I feel about The Walking Dead. Ah, uh, yeah, and that I would add that in my top ten probably, uh, yeah. like seasons one through five or so. Yes, and and then I don't know if it's because I haven't read the comics, but I don't know if it's because, like you said, with uh, the Martin books, like they got ahead of the comics or just that, you know had to start coming up with their own storylines, and it just uh, just kind of lost its way a little bit. But the the first you know four five seasons had some amazing episodes that, that make you feel all kinds of emotions and make you think and reflect. And yeah. so I love that yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that Stranger Things get, get has a bonus because it's trying to, it is really trying to give you the feeling of the eighties and the eighties is in my opinion, it is the last decade that I can think of. Not that we don't get this in film today because we do, but it's the last decade of film that was like almost intentionally trying to make you laugh to make you cry to make you feel nostalgic to make you feel like there's a love story like these days we say no this is a comedy so we won't do some of those other emotions we'll right. just stay away from those but the 80s tried to shove them all in <laughs> like it was yeah. like we're gonna do all the things yeah. and so i think that stranger things benefits a little bit from paying homage to that <laughs> yeah well there's that brilliant scene in season four when they're at the video store and they're going through the computer 
and they're trying to track down Eddie and the way they do it is by referencing all these great movies from the eighties, you know? And so it's like <laughs> perfect, you know, you know, homage to the eighties, but it also worked for the plot. So oh, it's awesome. There's a, there's a YouTube video out there where the Duffer brothers talk through what movies influence specific scenes. And it's, it's like mind blowing how much they actually, paid homage to exactly the way that that scene played out, but with their own characters in their own way. It's like a different, yeah. totally different context, but it's like almost filmed in some of the same beats. And you're like, this is really cool. Like they just, they have a great, the Duffer brothers obviously have a great appreciation for, yeah. um, for the things that happened in the eighties for sure. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, so it's, we both love it. We both think it's awesome. I do want to focus for this show I do want to focus a little bit more in on the villain. Uh, let's take a little bit deeper here into Vecna. We've had some really compelling villains in Stranger Things, and the latest villain is Vecna in season four. What do you think about Vecna as a villain in the Stranger Things universe? Uh, well, you know, he's terrifying because he can he can harm you physically without being there physically, so he can access you from the beyond. You know, yeah, yeah. So that, that's pretty terrifying because it's like if I can't see the threat and do anything physically to stop it, like I'm helpless, you know? Yeah. So I think that's pretty, pretty amazing. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Freddy Krueger, of course, like yes. who, you know, accesses you through your dreams and also was, uh, you know, uh, preyed on teenagers who, you know, were sensitive and had traumas. And um, so... You know, and, and and Robert England is in season four, so yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, but I thought the episode was interesting too when they went back to uh, his childhood. You know, and you see that sort of creepy, yes, uh, call back to his childhood with you know, and he's killing things and yeah. with his mind. We don't know, but you know, it, it gives you a little insight into like it makes you sort of sympathetic to the character yeah. in a way, maybe. Like mm -hmm. to understand, like he was tortured by whatever, um, and where he came from. Because you know, they say like the the villain is the hero of his own story. Yeah. So whenever I'm writing, you know, I obviously like try to create a sympathetic character. I mean, it's like Darth Vader's pure evil, but we know why. You know, <laughs> right. He lost his love of his life and his children, and you know. Um, so yeah. Anyway, kind of rambling. No, no, that's great. That's no, I, t I totally think you're right. You're right on about that. Um, Brianna in the chat says, I think Vecna is the most compelling villain so far. I like his backstory and connection to L, which is which is really interesting because this is basically like a it's like a uh, uh, I don't know how much time has actually passed, maybe five or six years, but this villain has been a villain to L in the past as well, but in a very different context which adds a lot of backstory, adds a lot of interest between the two because we know that there's, yeah. there's a relationship that exists there, which is really fascinating. Like Kennedy, like you were indicating, we even see him as a kid and what he has to kind of go through as a kid. Um, really, really compelling stuff. I do think that, um, by the way, I, fun story that I just heard the other day because I was watching an interview with the Duffer Brothers. And um, this is mind-blowing. Robert England... So for those who don't know, Robert England played Freddy Krueger, as you as you mentioned. Um, he they did not approach him. Robert England sent in a tape and it was not cast for he was not, I don't believe he was auditioning for I don't think they they didn't really get at this very much, but they didn't 
he did not have an idea of who he would play in the show. And they were like, we just got a tape from Robert England. And of course we have to put him in the show. Right. But what, so, so they go, well, you could be Victor, you could play Victor Creel. And so they had him play that character. But uh, I thought that story was fascinating because of course, if you get Robert England to be in your show, you say yes. Right. Especially when you're dealing with a, like you said, a villain who reaches from the beyond. I mean, it's like, you're talking about Freddy Krueger here, which is, uh, I thought was really, really phenomenal. Yeah. Um, That's cool. It's a, yeah. It's like, he was a fan of the show. So he just sent in a tape. Yeah. And I, I wasn't sure. So for me with Vecna, it's interesting because when I saw him in the previews, we have not seen a human villain in Stranger Things thus far. Hmm, We've sure. seen monster villains in Stranger Things thus far. Now, granted, those monster villains have, you know, obviously they uh, possessed Billy and they had the whole, the kind of zombie-ish kind of side story of season three. Um but we hadn't seen someone who was a human villain in the context of Stranger Things yet. So just seeing the preview, first of all, I thought it was Billy raised from the dead, basically. I thought it was going to be, that's who I thought it was going to be. It's not, but that's what I thought. And I, um, I was nervous about it because I thought to myself, you know, making a human character instead of a, a diabolical monster character changes right. our perspective right because now it's like well because when you have a monster we don't need to ask the origin story of the monster right um, it's why darth vader works without the prequels mm -hmm. so if you're going to make him human or her human in your story of a villain of any kind you then have to kind of get us to suspend our disbelief about how somebody could become that terrifyingly evil right yeah um and like you pointed out they do a really good job of uh, if you're going to talk about the prequels of, of star wars at all you got to say it's <laughs> they did a great job with vader's backstory because we understand how he could get to where he's at um and so i think that i was nervous about them making humanizing a villain of stranger things because we hadn't seen it before i wasn't sure what they were going to do with it and uh and they, I mean, I think that they pulled it off. I think he's a fantastic villain. Um, yeah. I think he does turn into a monster, so you get that. Yes, yes, and, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And incidentally, he looks a lot like the swamp thing. <laughs> he does. Yeah, he does. Is cool. Yeah, which is super cool. Yeah, the whole, the whole. Uh, after, so I've watched season four. I'm on my second watch of it right now. I'm going back and I'm watching it again. Uh, by the way, Theme Park Casual says, "Hey kids, what's up, Theme Park Casual?" Um, hey. The uh, in the second watch, I found it fascinating because it's it's really hard to believe it's the same actor who's in the costume. You're like, you gotta be kidding me! Like this costume is way too good, um, but it's really fun. So I, I really really like. Um, I think it really works for how they incorporated this villain. I am on my second watch through of Stranger Things season four. I'm loving it just as much as the first time I watched it. Sometimes when you watch something again, you'll find things about it that you feel like. Oh, I, did, I missed that before, and it doesn't really work for me. Um, but in this case, uh, I think it works phenomenal. One of the things that I reflected on was, um, for those of you who have seen episode four, Dear, Dear Billy. Dear Billy is, I don't know, maybe one of the best episodes of television of all time. And it's a very you know, average episode of Stranger Things, which means it's very good, up until the final sequence. And that final sequence is so good the final sequence with max is so unbelievably good that it just elevates that episode to new heights the whole sequence 
Um, we already know that Max is dealing with trauma um, from what happened to Billy in season three. We know that she's struggling to connect with other people. A lot of times, so this is what I, this is one of the things I really enjoy about Stranger Things, uh, all of the seasons, is that it's not just about the monsters and dealing with the trauma of having monsters in your life. But beyond that, <laughs> it's also about having to deal with the trauma of everyday life. And there just happens to be monsters out there as well. And that's some of, the, I think, the best Stranger Things is when they're dealing with that. Brianna has a question here. Does the character of one seem kind of out of nowhere to you as well? I'm conflicted because it seems like this was foreshadowed in season one. Um, but his character was just introduced. That's a really, really good question. For, so from a storytelling standpoint, this is one of those problems where you a character shows up and then you have continuity. <laughs> the character of one shows up in season four, but we've never seen him referenced before, right? Uh, one is the character who, by the way, this is a spoiler show, so we're, I'm just going to say this. Char one is the character who co goes on to become uh, Vecna. So is there, what do you think about in an, in an era of franchise storytelling, in an era where even Disney has told us we should be really, we should be really paying attention to Canon and everyone is paying massive attention to Canon. You know, like there's, there's entire videos dedicated to like the MCU timeline and when everything must occur and like all that kind of stuff. So as a storyteller, what do you do with something like this, where you're going to do a callback to something that we've actually seen before in prior seasons, but now we're introducing a new character in. Do how would you how would you go about doing that, Chris? Like, how do you do that and make it work? I don't know. It's interesting because I don't know if the Duffer brothers knew from the beginning, you know, that they were going to do this. Like, I I worked on a show with a one of my co-workers was a, a writer for J.J. Abrams. Oh yeah, and she was telling us that. Uh, when they made Lost, like they they actually didn't know what they were going to do, <laughs> even beyond the, even after the pilot, you know, they were and then it like became this huge hit, and they're like, oh man, we got to keep making it, you know, the network needed. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I've I've never I, I worked on a show that lasted. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> great people, but yeah. um, it was called Past Life, and it was uh. about uh, basically it was like reincarnation cops. So uh, it, was, it was like it was like somebody would experience some trauma in the present, and then this like medium, this like past life therapist and a cop would mm -hmm. figure out like why they're experiencing that, and it was like oh because their former self was murdered and they never found justice, you know. And right. so you know it only lasted six episodes because we just kept breaking the rules like each episode, like there was because it's you know it's there's no, I mean. I don't know what people's personal beliefs are, but there's not a lot of like logic, consistent logic <laughs> to that idea of reincarnation. So you can kind of make up whatever right. you want. Right, right. And so it was like, yeah, we were breaking rules in episode four that we had established in episode two. And um, <laughs> but that's kind of my only experience with that. But uh, that that's more about, I guess, like the mythology of the show. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, that is part of it, though. I mean, like mythology goes into I know I know one of the things when um, so my co-writer for most of the stuff that I've written, not all the stuff, but most of the stuff I've written is Nathan Sheck. You know, Nathan. Oh. And um, and it's one of the things that we 
intentionally when we go out to do a, a show or a, I shouldn't say a show, a book or whatever we're writing, um, film or whatever, we will say to ourselves, look, we have to take whatever could happen and reduce the impact of things. So for example, if you have a magic user and in and that magic user has like unbelievable powers, you're always going to have to ask yourself in every scene you write about that person, why didn't they use the magic powers, <laughs> right? Like you're always going to have to ask that. And and so what we do is we tend to say, okay, we're just we're just not going to allow for massive amounts of magic use. This is a very constrained type of magic. You can use a little bit of it, but you, it it costs something. It's not something you can use all the time. And so there are there are those things where you, that's kind of set up in your world world building. And in this case, with this, it's also a little bit related to world building, and it's a little bit related to character introductions because we, in season one we saw Eleven in the government facility in the MK Ultra program, which I'm going to do a separate separate show about MK Ultra and the fact that that's in Stranger Things because I get things gets lost sometimes, which I think is really fascinating. But Brenner is dealing with these kids in season one, and we never actually see. First of all, we don't see a lot of other kids in season one. Some of the other kids are introduced later, like season three. We get the um, the other character who's introduced, and we see that that character in flashbacks. We also see the Rainbow Room, but the Rainbow Room looks a little different in those flashbacks. So it, the Duffer Brothers did come out at the beginning of the show, and they said, "You know, we realize that we may break some continuity um, in this season." And so the question is for fans: How much do you have to suspend your disbelief when somebody breaks continuity? Right. Um, and my take on that is that I don't think fans care as they've cared more than they've ever cared in the past. And that's because franchise storytelling is much more popular than it has ever been. I mean, we, what was the first trilogy like in the seventies and eighties? I mean, it was not like we haven't had like franchise storytelling for a long period of time. And when we used to, it was like, well, James Bond shows up in a different movie and it's a standalone film every time. And sometimes it's a different right. guy. So it's like, it just kind of right. worked. Um, but now we have now we have serialized franchise storytelling, and that does cause us to pay a lot more attention. Because I, I will be honest, one of my um, one of my complaints about the Kenobi series was that I felt like there was a lot of times where that was uh, it was a struggle for me because I couldn't get. I think we tend to, as an audience, want to engage our emotional brains, and then on occasion be told to think about something. And usually those are con conceptual things. But sometimes as an audience, if we're not engaged enough emotionally, our thinking brain turns on and we go, I don't know if I can suspend my disbelief for this because I feel like this occurred in a different way some other time down the road and um, or in the past. Uh, so I think it's actually better to do what the Duffer brothers did and just come out and be like, there may be some continuity right. issues and it just is what it is like. It just because it, it just allows us to take the pressure off ourselves of trying to go like, well, why? Why? I don't understand why. It just allows us to just take a <laughs> take a breath of fresh air and go like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's yeah. fine. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, so you you've dealt with that. In fact, have you ever introduced a character in, that that should have been kind of introduced earlier but wasn't? Um, not really, just because I like in writing my own pilots, I don't write the whole series, so yeah. I like I I'll write out you know. A, paragraph synopsis of the the first see all you know eight episodes of the first season or something like that but yeah i've, I've spared myself to uh you know uh be accused of breaking continuity <laughs> um, <laughs> but me personally like when we meet one 
it didn't bother me. And and I kind of kicked myself as a writer because when he is talking to her and you see the tattoo, you know, when he's still a human, I was like, wait, he's Vecna, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm a writer. I should have caught that earlier, you know? But, uh, <laughs> and then of course, you know, the, that final image of the, you know, the one tattoo on Vecna. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, t- to me, again, I, I haven't seen the first couple seasons like in a little while, but um, it did, it wasn't like jarring for me or anything. Yeah. I went back and rewatched after we watched um, season four, I, my wife and I went back and we watched seasons one through four again. We're almost finished with four as we head into volume two. And, um, and I think on the rewatch, it didn't bother me that he wasn't present, but there's, I think the biggest question raised by the fact that by Brianna's question here is that the biggest problem it creates is that 11 now has trauma that's preventing her from being able to use her powers but that trauma didn't show up until season three, even though season in season one, some of these things would have occurred and she was right. still using her powers. So there's a little bit of a logic gap there. Now, granted, yeah. I will tell you that human beings have pretty messy lives and, you know, tra- your trauma, it sometimes your trauma sometimes doesn't show up till much later on in life. You know what I mean? So right. um, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt there. But Brianna, it's a good pickup. There are some. Yeah. There are some issues there in the story as it plays itself out. Um, Vecna's curse is a spell <laughs> that he casts on his victims. And it targets his victims' feelings of guilt and shame. So he's preying upon people by forcing them to face their past sins. There's even a slight indication that his victims may even allow him to kill them because they're overwhelmed by their guilt and shame and believe that they actually deserve to die. Like they're not worthy of life. And it's a lot of what Vecna is doing is he's preying upon that particular kind of fear. One of the things that I uh, think is really great about Vecna is this aspect of Vecna where the guilt and shame play a role in how his power works on other people. And I think that the reason why that's so compelling is because I believe it's a perfect analogy of how I believe the devil actually works, right? So uh, we'll get we'll get theological for a second. Then I'll get your take, Chris, because you froze for a second there, but I'll get your take in a minute. Um, uh, in my th- form of theology which is largely shaped by a guy named Tim Keller. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor, a philosopher, a thinker, a writer. Um, and he explains in one of the podcasts, he's talking about the devil and he talks about how the devil works. And by the way, the devil doesn't work. So when we're talking about the devil, what are we talking about? The devil we're talking about as, as a, uh, an entity that is against God, right? And most shows movies will portray the devil as this character who wants to harm humans and the devil or demons, depending on what, you know, what, what the, what the lore is there. It's all about, I want to harm human beings. Um, And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense from a theological standpoint, right? Because what you'd say from a theological standpoint is, well, if the devil is trying to harm me, then it will probably drive me toward God. But 
is the devil's motive main motivation is to separate you from God, right? Like that would be a more theologically accurate from my perspective view of the devil. So how does the devil separate you from God? And Tim Keller talks about this and I think he's right on, but it's similar to what Vecna does because the, de the devil does two things. He tempts us to sin. And then he tells us after we've sinned, he suggests to us that we're not worthy of God's love or the love of family or friends because we're sinners and that guilt and shame complex comes in, which, by the way, uh, a lot of psychologists will tell you that guilt and shame will cause you to go through the same patterns of sin again, because that guilt and shame cycle is really negative to producing that. So this method that the devil has of saying he's not going to harm you uh, so blatantly, he, what he's going to do is he's going to he's going to convict you of your own sin. And that will cause you to shy away from being close to God. It will cause you to shy away from being close to friends and family. So. What is Vecna doing? He's whispering in the ears of his victims that they're not worthy. And what does that do? It isolates them. It makes them afraid. It terrifies them. It means that they don't want to be around their friends because they think that they could harm their friends with their own sin patterns. And that ultimately that you're not worthy of love. And I think that um, the other movie that did this, by the way, from a horror standpoint, is Event Horizon. Event Horizon has a, has a very... Uh, you it, it actually is more is more like on the on the nose because it says you're basically going into hell and then all of the people start to see their lives um, from a standpoint of saying what can I what can I not give up on what have I what have I done wrong what do I deserve to be punished for and I think Vecna carries forward that philosophy of what guilt and shame cause in our lives and it's a sense of disconnection so for me personally i found vecna using that guilt and shame to add depth to his to his yeah. character because it because it causes there not only to be conflict between vecna and the and the kid in in question but also the kid in question and all of their network of friends and family so what did you think yeah yeah no i think you're right about the disconnection and isolation you know like he's he causing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's well put. Yeah. What, what else about what else about Vecna and the way that Vecna utilizes his powers is compelling to you, especially from a writing standpoint? Like what are some of the elements of the Vecna character and how he interacts with other people that cause you to feel like, hey, this is a really compelling writing? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, at first we think he's an ally. Um, <clears throat> so. You know, right, as one, yeah. Right. Um, uh, he's obviously like manipulative and lying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, again, yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, I just uh, what I alluded to earlier was like that ability to like access you to harm you. Yeah. Um, you know, in a way that's beyond your ability to fight it. Yes. It's pretty terrifying. <laughs> Very terrifying. Very terrifying. I, I also think I'm going to do a different show about this. So we won't get into this um, here, but I also, I think it's very compelling that the way to combat some of your feelings of game or of shame and guilt <laughs> game, just put those two words together um, is to listen to music that's impactful to you. And yeah. that causes you to think through like, uh, to, to draw upon memories, to draw upon feelings um, that allow you to kind of combat that game, that uh, guilt and shame yeah. um, kind of perspective, I think is really, really fascinating. You know, regarding the shame thing too, like the only way 
basically to defeat shame is to like bring it to the light. Yes. Like to confess, which is why I think like I'm Catholic and like, I think confession is, you know, whatever you believe about that. Like it's, it's psychologically freeing because you're acknowledging like, this is an issue I have, or this is, you know, something I've done wrong or, and uh, by bringing it into the light, it can be healed. Yes. Yes. um, So we'll, we'll see how that, plays out with Vecna but yeah yeah it would be really interesting I I I the last story we wrote I sent you a copy of it the um death of a bounty hunter the full cast audiobook but it's also a novel um was it was a um and you're probably familiar with this organization but it was a 168 mm-hmm. uh film um screenplay contest I believe that year we got we had two I had submitted two films that year um on the screenplay contest I think I got four and six <laughs> in the top 10. I was like, I was like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, but one of them was this story that was a short film to start out with. And it was based off of, cause the way this contest works is they give you a Bible verse and then you write a story based on the Bible verse. And the, the Bible verse was about before you leave your gift at the altar. So basically this is a, I'm leaving my gift at the altar as a means by which to showcase that I am confessing for my sin and that I'm, that I do, I do feel like I did wrong. So I'm going to leave my gift at the altar. But before I do that, before you leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother first. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's basically the, 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 the thought process behind Vecna. If I'm, if I feel like I, that God is going to forgive me, that is a big, huge step forward. And that could help me fight off Vecna. But the other thing is to go to the people around me and make sure that I am reconciled to them as well. So that, yeah. so that I have, like you're saying, like once, once it comes to light, then it's, it's not something that can be used against me as much anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we, guilt I know we're going to talk about devil's hollow in a little bit, yeah. but that sort of uh, is the theme of devil's hollow as well. And, you know, you have the word devil in there, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, <clears throat> because in the movie, uh, the main character, he's an ex con and, mm. He, he may have killed somebody in the past. We don't know. He he right. may have this money he stole years ago, um, but he won't come out and say it. And then uh, there's a scene where he's in a church and the pastor quotes uh, quotes uh, the gospel. And he says, uh, there's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. And there's nothing kept secret that won't come to light. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the theme of Devil's Hollow, too. It's like in order to for him to be healed and become whole. Like he has to eventually bring everything out into the light and come clean. Yeah. There's, there's no way around it. Cause the, you know, like they say, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. So yeah, it's true too. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting how much we've learned about that perspective as human beings and yet how much we still get it wrong. Like there's yeah. just, there's just this, there's a, this inherent, um, and I don't know about you, but I feel like it's hard to write about something that you have not personally experienced. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's this thing about human beings where we really it's so easy for us to think, well, if I just if I just keep that a secret, then maybe everything will be OK. But the problem is, is that that whole perspective of keeping the secret is what's causing us to have other problems. Right. And it's, it's a it's a very interesting concept and it's very fascinating to me that as human beings we're just so resistant to to we know that no one's perfect we know that i was i served on the elder board of a church i can tell you nobody's perfect and and i think it's one of those things where um you know we tend to think that some people are better than other people and some people are holier than other people and it's just this it's this concept that we 
that we keep wrestling with as a as a society, uh, as a species, really, as the human species. And it's interesting that we have methodologies for alleviating some of that those things for us, but it's very difficult for us to do that. It's, it's, it's for whatever reason we resist it. Look at look at Max in this show. She doesn't want to tell her friends. Not not only does she not want to tell her friends that she's guilty about how Billy died and how much she cares for Billy, um, despite the fact that they had a horrible relationship, but she doesn't even want to be around her friends. Um, and so I think that there's lots of things there that are just right on with how human beings deal yeah. with things. Um, well, then you also have Elle lying to Mike about being popular yes. um, because she, you know, wants to be wants wants him, I guess, to think she's normal and and, exactly. and we all just want to be loved. So exactly, exactly, exactly. It's and it's so fascinating because we can actually uh, love and receive love better when our secrets are out. Right yeah. now, now there's always some. There will always be some people in your life who will not be able to deal with your bullshit, right? <laughs> right? Like, like there's always going to be, and, and, and then that is what it is. Like that, that just is some people will not be able to forgive certain things. Some people will not because, because of their own trauma and because of their right. own hangups, they just can't do that very well. Um, we've all seen that happen in relationships. Um, so, but I do think that the one thing that the show would teach us, I think that you and I are basing our own stories about what, we feel like our faith is teaching us is that if you have a faith in something beyond yourself, you have two capabilities that you may not otherwise have. <laughs> Those two capabilities being, I can be honest about being a human because I realize that being a human means being imperfect. And if I'm imperfect, it means that there's, I shouldn't expect perfection out of myself. So I don't have to hang on to these secrets. You can have that perspective but then you can also have the other perspective, which is I know how bad my own sin is, which means I need to figure out a way to forgive other people when they actually sin against me. And, and those two perspectives can oftentimes be really difficult to have. And, and I don't want to suggest that if you're not a person of faith, you don't have that because I have other friends that are really good at that stuff, too, that are not people of faith that are just secular. Um, so I'm not saying that, but I do think that, that there is something about you know, whether it's a Catholic faith or a Christian faith or whatever. Um, although I do think that in the modern day, we are not finding the word, if you associate the word Christian, and I don't know how you feel about this with Catholic, but when I associate the word Christian, I don't oftentimes see the second part of the equation where you can forgive other people easier. <laughs> I don't see that happening very often. I'm not sure why that is, but I think it's probably a, a problem with tribalism. Um, well, I think it's part of just being human. You know, it's like, like you said, regardless of your faith or no faith or whatever you believe, um, you know, we're all human. That's why we all respond to stories. And yeah. Uh, yeah. we all laugh and cry, and get angry. And, um, right. But I think, I think like, like you're saying, like recognizing your own junk makes you more compassionate so that you're yes. able to forgive. And there's a, quote from, uh, I think it's the playwright Thornton Wilder. He oh, said, yeah. in love service, only wounded soldiers can serve, which I thought uh, was cool. Because it's like when you cool. when you are aware of your own wounds and you're willing to acknowledge them, you can really love others better that way, I think. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, well, fantastic discussion about Vecna. Um, the one other thing I'll say about Vecna, because I want to get into your movie, 
um, have plenty of time to talk about that. But one other thing I'll say about Vecna is I love the visual design of his of his attacks because it starts with you seeing the clock, meaning you're running out of time. And then the clock turns into spiders, which means this is the clock is not friendly. <laughs> it, is, it is not it is not good for you. Um, and then it is the him approaching you and saying like, and then this is when the guilt and shame is really being hammered upon, so that he can basically, uh, for lack of a better word, like pull you into his web. And once you're in the web, he can then just take you and and put you in the upside down, which I think is really really interesting. Um, so okay, so let's get into Devil's Hollow. So you 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 alluded to this. Is there is there something behind um, the word devil being in the title? It's called Devil's Hollow. Yeah. Is there something about that that um, is meaningful to that film? Uh, yeah. To be totally honest, like it's uh, I just thought it was a cool sounding name, and it's the name <laughs> it, is, it is a cool sounding name. It's the name of a road in my town in uh, Franklin, Kentucky. And I just always thought it was like cool and kind of evocative, you know, but it ended up uh, sort of thematically becoming something more than that as I wrote the story. Um, Cause there's a Flannery O'Connor quote and uh, I'm paraphrasing it. She says, basically she looked back, she says, when I look back on my own aspect in fiction writing, it's usually about the work of grace in territory usually held by the devil. Uh, and so I was, nice. so, I thought like, yeah, that perfectly plays into Devil's Hollow because that's essentially what it's about. There's all these broken people and they have sins and they're hiding things, but they want to reconnect. And um, uh, and so Grace is working in that, you know, but they are in Devil's Hollow still. They're in territory right. largely held by the devil. So, yeah, I thought it was a good I thought it was. Um, so as a person, I've never been to Kentucky. Um, so I, I've, when we, when we drove from uh, Florida back to here to Colorado, we went through a lot of States and we went through a lot of different areas, um, and didn't really, um, we might've passed through a little bit of Kentucky, but didn't really get to stay there that much. But what I thought that, I thought that the name of the film was evocative because there are these films that are told or, or TV shows like, like uh, true detective. Cause I would, I would say this, this is sort of like, um, who's the guy who stole all the money and they've never found the money. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a famous person that there's uh, DB Cooper. Yes. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'm trying to think of that name. Um, ever since I started coming up with questions, this is like your film is like DB Cooper meets true detective. <laughs> That's what I feel like is like kind of like yeah. what's going on there. And I'll, I'll uh, like that true detective <laughs> season one was great. Oh, True Detective season one is amazing. Yeah. But there is this sense, and True Detective has this, True Detective season one has this sense too, that there's something very human happening here, but it almost feels like the depth of that sin is going beyond what is human. And then, of course, True Detective gets into some kind of occult type of stuff when it when it jumps into it. Your film doesn't necessarily do that, but it's just still evocative of that. It's still evocative of like the like you just said, the devil's hollow is where we live when we are living in the the place where we're not supposed to be as humans. And then yeah. how do we work ourselves out of that place? That's good. That's really cool. Yeah, um, there's always something more going on. Like there's always the in my worldview, there's always the possibility of redemption even if you don't accept it like it's available yes. no. yeah it's like it's like um this is this is a really interesting concept that i think that george lucas i think it's one of the reasons why so many people love star wars and that is that no matter how horrific 
Vader gets. Vader is certainly not worthy of a human to human redemption arc. He's not worthy of it. He killed a bunch of kids. Right. <laughs> like he's he, he he betrayed the whole Jedi order. Like Vader's not worthy of a redemption arc from a human to human perspective. He's worthy of jail time. You know, if you believe in the death penalty, he's worthy of the death penalty. I mean, this is a horrific, horrific human being. And yet the spiritual redemption is still available to him. And we all resonate with that because we all realize that we we have a need of redemption ourselves, right? Right. So, um, so I think that that's really interesting. I think you're right on with that. To give a little bit of a just a synopsis of what Devil's Hollow is about, I know you did that a little bit earlier, but just go ahead and talk, talk, talk to us a little bit more about what that what this film is about. Yeah, so it's uh, about a a guy who um, he's an ex-con, so he's been in prison for ten years uh, for a robbery with uh, with a few friends, and he's just getting out of prison. And and uh, you know when I started writing it, I wrote it with the intention of like coming back to Kentucky to shoot it. And so I thought like, how can I keep it, you know, low budget? How can I keep it, you know, primarily to one or two locations? And so that gave me the idea of like, well, if he's on house arrest, if he has like an ankle monitor, he can't leave the farm. So we can shoot most of it on this farm, you know, and be, but yet still have dramatic stakes and tension. And um, so that kind of gave me the idea. And, and I'm, I'm just interested in the idea, kind of like what we're talking about of, you know, the possibility of redemption for anybody. And that theme has always been compelling to me. Um, so yeah, so he's, uh, he's on stuck on his farm with an ankle monitor and he's trying to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter. Mm. Uh, Cause he's been in prison most of her life. And then uh, she ends up getting threatened by his former crime partner. And so he has to decide like, has, is he going to risk his freedom to go save her? Uh, because the minute he leaves the farm, he violates his, parole and the cops will come after him. So can he get to his daughter before the cops get to him? So it becomes this kind of race against the clock toward the end. Yeah. And there's, there's a, there's a kind of a component in there too, about should you do your time? Should you reconcile or should you try to run and get away with it? Like there's, there's a right. little bit of a hint of that too. And I, th I think that's, yeah. that's really compelling too, because when you take this issue, this root core issue, and this happens in our story too, in death of a bounty hunter, but you take this root core issue of you're dealing with some form of shame and guilt and your options are to keep running or to recognize that you need to have reconciliation. Right. And if you're going to run, you're never going to stop running. <laughs> like, like until you make the turn to say, no, 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 I'm going to reconcile. You will be running forever. <laughs> like it yeah. is a, it's a very interesting, very interesting concept. So I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil the film or anything, but when he, when he when he makes the decisions that he makes, I think that those things they have impact because it means that okay, I'm ch I'm making a choice here. I'm not going to do the I'm not going to do the thing that I would like to do. If I could get away with everything, it would be okay to make that decision, but I, I will never be able to get away with everything. And right. so therefore, I yeah, you'll, you'll live with it forever. And he <laughs> yeah, well, he he you know, spoiler alert, but he uh, <laughs> he, he has the money still that he robbed years ago and so he's buried it on his farm but he won't admit that to anybody right. um and and then we see him like start to dig it up because he's planning on eventually just like leaving town going to mexico or somewhere and uh <clears throat> but ultimately you know that digging up is sort of metaphorical for like having to bring again like his sins to light that he, right uh and in order to save his daughter 
he has to give that money over. Um, so like he, he knows when he digs it up, like eventually he's, he's not going to get away. Like the cops are going to find him, but at least he will have reconciled with his daughter and given her a chance at a better life. Absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, so tell me a little bit about where did, where do you, when do you start writing this story? And then tell me just milestone by milestone. Like how do you, because I want, I just want to just for those people watching and listening, it is incredibly difficult to make a film. You have to have the money. You have to have the people. You've got to have uh, the availability of the time. I mean, like, it's, it's so difficult to make a film and to make a film that is a film that is the film you intended to make, right? Mm -hmm. so some films are made that, like, for example, Jaws. Jaws apparently was a giant disaster that just happens to be a great film. <laughs> but, like, it, you, so many things could go wrong along the way um, that magic sort of has to happen in multiple cases in order for this film to come out the way that it would. So just tell me all the things that happened during the process of this from writing it to directing it well I, I wrote it in 2014 and one reason i wrote it is because like i had said earlier i worked on a couple of shows as staff writer and i remember that year going out on a round of interviews to try to get staffed on a show i got close to a couple things but didn't end up getting staffed and so i was sitting in my apartment in Studio City and I was like, you know, I could just sit here waiting for the phone to ring or for my manager to find me something or I'm a writer. Why don't I just write something and go make it, you know? So that was kind of the inspiration, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to write something, go back to Kentucky and then started developing the idea. Um, so I wrote it uh, that fall of 2014 and then I was going to go to Kentucky in 2015 to shoot it. I didn't know it was going to take seven years, but, uh, <laughs> but we, you know, I showed it to my manager and he was like, Oh, you know, this like, this is actually good. Like you, you shouldn't just like go shoot it with your buddies, you know, like yeah. you should yeah. try to get a name actor and really get it out there. Um, otherwise you're just going to have a really expensive home movie that nobody's ever going to see. <laughs> right. So, so we started, we met with a casting director in LA and then, uh, started shopping it around. Like we went to some of the big agencies, like, uh, ICM and Paradigm and Gersh and you know they were pitching us these great actors and and we got some some interest from some uh some some actors but we just didn't have the money at the time so it was like I remember one actor read it and uh it was actually Sean William Scott oh yeah yeah and he was wanting to kind of break into something more dramatic you know and yeah. so I remember his, we sent it to his agent like on a Thursday night and she called us Friday morning and she was like he he wants to do it he's in and this is his fee. And we were like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a script, but we don't have any money. So, right, right, right. Yeah, so he had to pass. And but it was encouraging, you know, because we were getting good responses from people. And um, and then we had a, an investor attached at one point for one point one million. And so we had the budget made up and everything. And then about two weeks before we were going to start pre-production, he he just pulled out. And so, <sighs> um, you know, and then I work on other stuff and wrote other scripts. Uh, you know, in the intervening years. Yeah. But finally, I guess it was like fall 2020. I was like, you know, like I, I need to just make it you know, <laughs> yeah. somehow. just, just do it. And so um, I have a friend who's a producer. She's, I met her in LA, but she lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hmm. And so she had acted in a, in a movie with Shuler Hensley, who's a Tony winner. Um, he's the lead in our movie. So she got the script to him and it was, it kind of worked out well for us. Um, 
with COVID in the sense that like, you know, everything had shut down. Yeah. And so actors were hungry to work on something, you know, and so Schuler read the script and he was like, yeah, I want to do this. And, That's cool. um, and so then we brought on a couple more local producers in Tennessee and we actually shot it in Tennessee. It takes place in Kentucky, but we got a little tax incentive to shoot down there. And then most of the crew and, you know, right. the producers were local. So, um, Schuler was in Atlanta at the time he's on, on a Broadway show right now, but he was in Atlanta. And so he would just drive up three hours, you know, so we would shoot on a weekend and then take a break for a month. And so ultimately we, we did a crowdfunding campaign on seed and spark. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't heard of that. It's like, you know, it's like Kickstarter, but it's specifically for just for like films and short films. And, um, and so we, we did a campaign for that and raised like $12,000 to get started. Nice. Um, and so, and then, you know, like all the actors, uh, initially worked for free and, uh, like I, I wasn't getting paid, you know, we were all working for free, the producers and everything. We had to pay crew members, of course, like our DP and yeah, yeah. sound guys and lighting people and, and all that. But, uh, but yeah, so we just kind of put the team together and we were like, well, we have $12,000. We don't have all the money we need, but let's just start shooting it, you know? And, yeah. um, so I would drive down from Kentucky to Knoxville, which is about three hours as well. Um, and we shot like for three days in April of last year. And then we took a break for a month and then we went back down and we shot for two days in May. And then ultimately we shot 10 days over five months. So oh, wow. we wrapped in August. And, Just uh, 10 days. Wow. Yeah. That's a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, we got a lot, I mean, there were long days of course, but we got a lot done and yeah. you know, we did a like zoom read through and a lot of meetings before we started. So we could all be familiar with the, the script and actors motivations and all that stuff. Um, so we did our prep work, uh, but it, it was kind of cool the way it worked out. Cause we would, like I said, we would shoot for a weekend and then we couldn't get back together. Everybody's schedules for like another month, but that gave me time to do pre-production for yeah. the next weekend. And then you would have a month and you do pre-production, you know, so just kind of do it in bits and pieces like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So we wrapped in August and then, uh, and then um, a buddy of mine who I met when I was getting my master's degree at Asbury university um, in screenwriting, he is a sound designer. Mm. And so uh, we became friends and then I told him about the project and then he, he came on board and did the editing and the sound design for us and nice. uh, just did it like pro bono because he, awesome. he wanted the credit, you know, and he yeah. believed in the project and um, we're going to pay him eventually. But yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah he was having I mean, so many people just like, you know, with any indie film just made a lot of sacrifices. And, you know, then we I would have a relative here and there write a check, you know, for a thousand dollars. And then I would put my own money into it and the other producers would and eventually yeah. we we got it in the can and then we finished editing it uh we got the final cut in april that's awesome and uh so now like we've we've talked to a few distributors who have made offers um but we're not going to make any moves until uh we see what happens with the festivals so we submitted to nine festivals so far and we start hearing about if we get into them or not uh starting in uh july and august that's awesome. So, yeah. So it's like, you know, it, it's cool that we already have interest from some distributors. Um, but 
we'll see what happens at the festivals. Maybe, you know, if some, if distributors are there and can make a better offer, you know, we'll just kind of see what, what rolls out. So that's super cool. But we've, we've always, you know, we've always known it's like a streaming movie. Like it it was never going to be a big, like theatrical release, but we have talked about maybe doing a, like a week run in LA and New York, um, you know, to get some local reviews and just build the, build the buzz and the pedigree. And then, so, you know, and if, if we're fortunate enough to get into these festivals and, you know, we can slap some laurels on the poster. So exactly. That's the best. Yeah. yeah. Um, now what was your, now this is not the first project you've ever directed, right? But I'm assuming it is the first project, the first feature. Yeah, I, I directed a, yeah, I, I did a feature like super micro budget okay. uh, in 2017. It, and it was kind of like while I was waiting to do Devil's Hollow, you know, I was like, well, I just want to yeah. make something. And I was in Kentucky. And so it, it literally it was like a $5,000 budget. And it was just me and my friends were the actors and it was all set in one house. And, you know, yeah. so that was kind of like, it was cool because it keeps working those muscles, you know, those creative muscles and production muscles. And absolutely. Um, so, but uh, I did that, but I, I really consider Devil's Hollow like my first feature, you know. Yeah, that was just practice. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so what what was uh, what was different about directing this one? Because I will say that, like, for a directorial debut, uh, it's pretty stunningly well directed for a directorial debut. I mean, d- directorial debuts uh, a lot of times will have a lot of clunkiness to them in terms of the in terms of like, wow, that, that camera placement was awkward. And, but you do, you did a lot of where I told you um, via Facebook messenger, I said, you know, a lot of your shots, especially in the beginning of the film um, have a very, the feeling of, uh, of uh, the, the man of steel trailer, which is one of the best trailers of all time. Right. Like there's these quiet shots where you're, you're kind of maybe something close up in the foreground and then in the background, you're just letting the kind of the landscape play. And, so how did you, as a first-time director, maybe not having some of the experience that, mm-hmm. you know, somebody has if they've done 10 films, what, where did you draw inspiration from and how did you shoot some of those in like intentionally? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, honestly, like my philosophy was uh, just hire the best people and just turn them loose and let them do what they do, you know, sort of yeah. delegate. And uh, I did, I think it was Robert Altman or somebody who said like 90% of directing is good casting and so you know i was like we'll get shuler we'll get this guy david dwyer who plays the villain and he's been in movies for 30 years you know and um and he lives down in tennessee and uh just put together the best cast and just let them do their thing and you know i really didn't have to give many notes on the performances like i would make suggestions here and there um but those guys were pros you know so it was like just cut them loose and let them do it and then i trusted the dp as well like we talked about sort of the look in the film and, and comparable films, you know, um, for him to kind of get and study like bone and, uh, mm. you know, true detective season ones like that. Um, but the Matthew McConaughey movie. Oh yeah. Uh, and we ended up, we ended up calling it like uh summer's bone because it was like a winter <laughs> bone type, you know, rural story, but we shot it in the summer. So it wasn't going to be like cold and gray, but so we talked about the look of the film and, but I, I just kind of let him go do his thing. And then like in between scenes, um, 
when uh, the, you know, the crew was setting up lights and stuff, the DP would just go out with his camera and just get a shot of the fence or get a shot of this leaf on the wall, you know, and we ended up like pulling from a lot of that stuff, like just to, for interstitial uh, yep. shots, you know? Um, so yeah. And, and I just wanted everybody to have fun. It was like, let him be creative, you know, let him yeah. do his thing. I'm not going to tell him exactly how to shoot it. I, I know there were, there were times where I was like, Oh cool. There's a, an old uh, wooden swing that's hanging from a tree. And it was like, can we, can we frame the shot where we start on that? And then we follow the car. And so like, I would make suggestions, but I mostly just trusted the DP and the actors and everybody to just to do their thing, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. I know as a, as a writer, it's interesting because I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of writer you are. Certain writers are better at being flexible and other writers are <laughs> yeah. more, I, I'm not, I'm not as flexible. I, I, I can, uh, if you want me to adapt something, I can adapt it, but you gotta give me time to think through it and see how right. it changes everything else. Some of these writers are like uh, my, my buddy, uh, Caleb Monroe, he was telling me about the feature that he wrote and he's, he's talking about like, he's like, you know, he's writing, he wrote a feature that was filmed in Mongolia. So he's getting notes on the script like at the end of day, their day, and then he writes it during the day and hands it off to them to film the next day. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, so wow. it's pretty wild. Like, um, so how how much of it was, because I know a lot of directors are this way, where they'll just be like, this is a cool moment. I'm capturing it. We'll figure out how to put it in the film. We'll figure out if it goes in or if it doesn't, you know, like right. how, how much of that did you feel yourself doing? Were you pretty much like, I needed to stick to the story or like that example where you're like, this is a cool swing. We're going to film it. Like how much yeah. of that was there? Uh, well, the, uh, the story is pretty simple. So like, as long as a scene was doing what it's supposed to do in terms of plot, like I didn't mind if an actor like improvised some lines, as long as they were communicating the point of the scene and the story was still moving forward. So, you know, especially like our villain, David, he, uh, he kind of came up with some of his own lines. Like there's a, a line in the script where he's threatening a character and he says, I think in the script, he says, like, you don't have the good sense God gave a coon dog. Yeah. And then David was like, you know, you don't, you ain't got the good sense. God gave a three-legged coon dog with a bad nose who really ought to be put down. <laughs> like, <"Well>, <laughs> you know? Let's go with it. Yeah. And, and sometimes I would like, you know, you, you want to allow the actors to have fun with that, but then also get a take where it's a, uh, according to script and then you can decide what you want to, you know, cause he, he improvised another line in the scene where he confronts Bobby in his living room. And, uh, and he asked me if I could, if he could do it. And so I said, yeah, but we ended up not using that, but then we used some of his other stuff. So, um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like super precious about the words I've written and yeah. even in terms of like, I, I, I tend to write really spare, mm. um, action yeah uh you know scene direction and pretty economical writing because i remember somebody told me once like as a screenwriter you could write you know exterior sunset evening the fiery red sun sinks below the golden <laughs> purple clouds you know and but the reality is you're only going to be able to shoot the sunset god gave you when you show up on set you know? so, <laughs> right, right, right. unless it's like something very specific to the story you know that you need to create i, I would just i'll just say like exterior farm day you know bobby stands on the porch and his parole officer pulls up yeah and, yeah. Then, and then we just figure out how the most the simplest way to block that you know um but i 
I didn't want to, I, I, I admire uh, Clint Eastwood as a director. Mm. Um, you know, not all of his films, but, uh, but the simplicity, like I've read that he just does like one or two takes and then he moves on yeah. and, and you just let the, the images tell the story, you know, like you don't have to get super crazy with drones, all this camera movement and, you know, we have some dolly shots and stuff like that, but it was like, we don't, would it have been cool if we had a crane, you know, for the scene where we're in the quarry? Like, yeah, it would have been cool, but yeah. like, you, but you can still tell the story simply and right. hopefully it, hopefully it, uh, you know, works on its own just because of the emotional, uh, thrust of the story. Um, yeah. we did use a couple drone shots. I just found a, a guy here in Kentucky who, uh, had a website with all these shots flying over mountains. And so we just bought like a couple drone shots and put those in there. But that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. I said, yeah. I said that to my wife when we were watching it. I'm like, Oh, drone shot. Cool. Yeah. Um, so that, that's the other thing too, though, is like, I didn't, cause you see all these drone shots. You're like, Oh, that's awesome. That'd be cool here. That'd be cool there. And then it's like, but that's something you have to be like really careful with, like, cause you can totally overdo it. Whether it's yeah. a dolly shot or a crane or a drone, you know, so it was like, we only have two drone shots in it, but they're just enough to sort of establish the town. Um, but it's like, I don't want to rely on that. I want the story to tell itself, you know, stand absolutely. on its own. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think uh, a lot of times the directing that I'm most impressed with is what they don't show you. It's all the yeah. things that they tell you to focus on as opposed to all the other stuff that could just be, it's all set dressing at that point, but sometimes you just don't need that. You know what I mean? Like you just need to have the core of what the, the emotions the characters are feeling and when they're feeling them and why. Yeah. Um, did you have a favorite scene? Did you have one scene that you're like, this is my favorite scene in the film? I think my two favorite scenes are both in Bobby's living room. Mm -hmm. One is when he's uh, visited by his nemesis, Harry, yeah. who threatens him and says, you know, I know you still have that money we robbed years ago and yeah. you're going to give it to me. And, um, cause I just thought the two actors were great in that scene. Yeah. And then my other favorite scene is in that room when Bobby's daughter comes to visit him and he yeah. starts reading to her from a CS Lewis book, trying to reconnect with her. And she sort of gets overwhelmed emotionally because she realizes what she's been missing all these years. She never had a dad, you know? And I just yeah. thought his, interestingly, <clears throat> his daughter in the movie is, is Shuler's real life daughter. Oh, um, no way. Yeah. So they had that connection and uh, cool. she did a great job there. That's cool. <laughs> That's crazy. Cause I would, I would not have guessed that watching it. Not, not, not that they don't look like or anything, but it just wouldn't have even been in my mind that that was a thing. His whole persona, it really, he's able to do a lot with his face, which is really helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Because he has a lot of quiet moments. There's not a lot that he has to, he, just, he doesn't have any, I can't even think of a major outburst that he has. He's not like the the character who's played by the villain. That guy's like always like subtle, 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 subtle. Now I'm mad at you, right? Like, there's, which is which is his own skill set for sure. But um, but the what he has to do with subtlety, especially the fact that how much has he done on film? Because if he's a Tony, if he's a if he's a Broadway guy, that's a lot of projection. There's right. not a lot of like subtle, quiet moments. So how did how did that work out? He just is accustomed yeah. to working on film. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but I think he's just a good actor, you know, he's just a good, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A good actor. And he had done a lot of film. He was in, uh, he played Frankenstein in Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. Oh, and, no uh, way. Awesome. They're good. They're good buddies. They're both on Broadway right now together in the music man. Um, oh, that's cool. And uh, he was in a movie called Odd Thomas with Anton Yelkin. Um, yeah. nice. And 
I'm trying to think what else. I mean, he's he's done films. Uh, he he was also on the most recent uh, season of Dexter, the ah. reboot. He played yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Killer, you know. So um, so he know he knows when to project and when to pull back. That's awesome. Uh, That's really cool. Yeah, I just heard I just heard an interview with Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon was on Hot Ones, which Hot Ones is all about eating the spicy hot wings while you're getting yeah. <laughs> interviewed. And uh, and Kevin Bacon said that you know he had come from a uh, I think it was a theater background, and and I think it was his first film. I don't remember which film it was. I don't know if it was Footloose or a different film. But the director kept saying to him like, "Okay, a little less, <laughs> a little yeah. less." And so I know that that can be a thing. But as I'm not an actor, so I don't know. I, I don't have any expertise in that area. One of my um, one of my favorite stories Schuler told me was he was working with a director. It was a French director, and Schuler they did the take, and then the director said to him, he said. Let's do it once more, but this time with talent. <laughs> I, I would, yeah, nice. I would joke with them about that on set. Can we do it, Can we do it with talent this time? <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, there's nothing like a confidence builder by saying you can do it with talent. Um, well, cool. Well, where can people, where can people, if they want to watch Devil's Hollow, if they want to um, support the film's journey as it gets to a place where you can hopefully get to distribution. What should people look for? What should people pay attention to? Where can they learn more about it? Yeah, there's a devil's hollow movie.com is the website. Nice. And so we'll update that with info. And then uh, there's a trailer on YouTube. If you just look up devil's hollow movie trailer. Awesome. You'll find that on there. So that, that's probably the best right now. We have a Facebook page, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll just keep you posted on everything. So. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, and we'll let, we'll let everybody know. Um, you let us know when something's coming out that they can watch, and we'll let them know. In the meantime, uh, do you have any? Are you a social media guy? Do you are there, can people go follow you anywhere? Uh, no, just Facebook. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I I, I, I like have a love hate relationship. I mostly a hate relationship with social media, but I feel like with some of these projects, when you're doing them independent. It's sort of like, well, that's one of the ways I have to hopefully reach exactly. some people. So you try and do it, but it is a uh, it is a wild world out there on social yeah. media. Well, thank you for joining me, Chris. Um, if, is there anything else that you want to say to the folks about um, like any writing advice you'd give? Or I mean, you're a guy who literally said, "I'm going to make my own film," and you yeah. did it. So, is there anything that you say, say just, to people yeah, who want to do that? I would say it's possible. You know, um, do it. Uh, you know, Mark Duplass, the filmmaker, indie filmmaker, gave this talk where he said, uh, so many people are waiting for the cavalry to come save them. The cavalry being Hollywood, you know, like they're gonna buy my script or make my movie. And he said, the cavalry is not coming, you are the cavalry. And <laughs> That's awesome. So that, that inspired me. It's like, yeah, just, you know, won't be easy, but, but it can be done. So go out there and do it. I dig it, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks for joining me. If you need now, if you need a summer audiobook to listen to, you should definitely go check out Devil's Hollow Movie, devilshollowmovie.com, right? Yeah. yeah, definitely go check that out. Follow the journey that Chris and his team are on as they try to get distribution for this thing. But if you need a summer audiobook to listen to, I'd love for you to read or listen to Death of a Bounty Hunter. If you're a fan of steampunk fantasy western mashups, we call them weird westerns, then please pick up a copy of our full cast audiobook, Death of a Bounty Hunter. It's about a desperate sheriff who will do anything to save his daughter and a bounty hunter who realizes he can no longer run from the truth. It's sort of a little bit Red Dead Redemption meets Raiders of the Lost Ark with some badass female characters thrown in for good measure. A link to deathofabountyhunter.com will be in the description. 
please support the show by picking up a copy. That is it for today's show. If you have a topic or a question you'd like for me to cover, please leave me a comment or shoot me an email at hi at reclamationsociety.org. I'd love to include your questions or topic ideas in a future show. New episodes of The Story Geek Show drop every week, both on YouTube and on your preferred podcast provider. Wednesday is sort of the official release date, but honestly, I release the, I release new content throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed either on YouTube or your preferred podcast provider to get notified of all the latest content. Thanks for watching, and next up, I will continue to talk more about Stranger Things Season 4, Volume 1, and Volume 2. Stay tuned for that, and I will see you on the next show. Thanks again, Chris, for joining us. All right, thanks, Jay.